Three, two, one. Welcome to another episode of the Stoned Apes Podcast. And it is the Reverend and the Captain. How you been, sir? Dude, I'm missing you. Man, it's been a minute. It's it's been a couple weeks. We've we've had a crazy uh well, you've had a crazy couple weeks. Well, yeah, it feels good to be back in the Silverback Lounge. I'll tell you what, my hotel room studio. Not the same. <laughs> Not the same. I was setting up at like little desk tables inside of this hotel room. And, uh, you know, I was sitting on a bed and we had as many chairs as we could brought into the room. Well, you didn't, have was... your cap- you didn't have your captain either, which isn't always good. Yeah, I was going to say that too. I'm sure you were. <laughs> Dick. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did all right. We did all right. I'll tell you what, guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode. And we have a few guests with us today. We have Ann Dorn. And Ann, would you like to tell us a little bit about your organization and who this gentleman is sitting next to you? Yes. Um, well, first, I'm a retired sergeant from the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Um, in 2020, I lost my husband to violence in the city of St. Louis. He was murdered. And out of that, I created the Captain David Dorn Foundation, which um, supports first responders throughout our area and the state of Missouri by buying them equipment, supplying them with mental health needs, um, any emergency things that they might come up with. If we have the money and we can support them, we do. Um, I brought with me Gary Foster, who is a longtime partner and co-worker of mine. He's a, he's a former police officer, firefighter, um, EMS worker, and he's been a huge supporter of mine. And he's been with me. We've been friends for years, and he was one of the life forces that kept me going after my husband died. And um, I, he's very invaluable to me. And he brings such a different perspective sometimes to helping our first responders and uh, keeps my eyes open two different things that we need to do for our first responders. So, and, and, and we get, we both get so much out of it. We didn't, we took for granted how, um, how much we had as first responders in the city of St. Louis. And we come down to these rural areas and find out these guys have nothing. And to be able to provide them with some of the, just some of the minimal stuff that we were able to get uh, is so eye opening and rewarding to know these guys aren't pulling money out of their pockets and taking money off their tables and away from their children to buy equipment, that I can do that for them. Well, you guys, I, I appreciate you coming today because you represent a large segment of our audience that I we haven't had the opportunity to give enough attention to yet. You know, we're a primarily a veteran-focused and veteran outreach organization, but helping first responders and understanding that first responders also deal with the same traumas. And in a lot of ways, like we talked about just before the podcast, different traumas than uh, military do. Uh, And it's important to understand that, you know, PTSD is real and a lot of law enforcement officers that they're walking around, they're living with this from day to day and uh, giving the outreach and support to that community and making sure that they have access to the right resources for healing, for proper mental health is extremely important important. And I was really shocked to see you and meet you for the first time because I met you at the Missouri Psychedelic Conference of yes. all places. I, there was a few places I did not expect to see members of law enforcement. That was one of them. 
And uh, and since then, I have found out that this is a huge movement within the law enforcement community, um, that there's a, a lot of outreach in this area. There's several police departments that are considering putting in programs. I've talked to a lot of officers that said hey, 100 percent interested in, in possibly moving toward plant medicine later. You know, once I retire, yeah. things like that, you know, due to social stigmas and whatever. So this is a an interesting and engaging conversation. And uh, I love what you're doing. And, you know, you're. Your story is very unfortunate. I, I'm my heart goes out to you for your loss. Agreed. Thank you. There, there's a lot of things, and I can even speak to this as a soldier myself. I'm very grateful that I never suffered loss with anybody that I served with. There, there's a there's a disconnect that I think that happens, and I, I've I, the people that I have met that have had PTSD the worst, the ones that are really suffering, of all lost people dear to them close friends, close, com, uh, you know, uh, co-workers and things of that nature, you know, family members. And I, I just don't feel like there's the same type of trauma for people that haven't had that loss. Well, you have the trauma, then you have survivor syndrome, you know, why them, not me. It, it just, uh, it's a snowball effect at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. So what exactly, so let's talk, how long has your organization been around? Um, two years now. Two years now. Yeah, we've, we've been going about two years. Um, well, it'll be two years in February, March of next year. And how many law enforcement agencies do you currently work with? How many are you hoping to get to? I haven't broke it down by agency, but by first responder. So far, we've helped 822 first responders in the St. Louis metro area. That's unbelievable. Wow. Or the, the eastern half of the state. In two years? A year and a half. That's crazy. So you've been busy. We've been busy. Actually, just just to back up a second, uh, working in St. Louis City, some years, God, it had to be 10, 15 years back. I don't know when the St. Louis Police Foundation started, but that was my first exposure and probably yours too, where these people, civilians, walked into our roll call and they said, hey, we want to take care of you guys. We want to provide things to you that your department doesn't provide well you show me a policeman that isn't cynical and (laughs) so we were like yeah right okay well it turns out these people were all ceos of places like boeing major corporations and so they these people came in with a lot of money and they were like hey what kind of things can we get you guys that the that police departments don't supply so they started supplying us with like great winter coats and let's be honest the st louis police department operates on a low bid system when they get bids for winter coats they're going with the low bidder uh flashlights was another thing um they have supplied so much equipment to the policemen in the city and i I just thought it was that way everywhere and then um ann's husband david had a reputation amongst his policemen for he took care of his people. And uh, Anne had mentioned that she wanted to do something to keep David's name alive. So we decided at first, let's do what the St. Louis Police Foundation did for us. Let's do that for smaller departments. And our first donator actually was Eric Greitens. He wrote us a check and he was behind us a hundred percent. He's like, I like what you're doing. And, um, 
we were like, holy cow, this is great. We had some money there. Well, equipment, as you know, you spend money really fast. And we started picking smaller underfunded departments. We started out with like Herculaneum mm-hmm. and then Festus. And we have, we hit every single police department in Jefferson County. Then we started getting emails from departments all over the state of Missouri. Before we'd us, leave one city or a community, another city would be calling us or texting us, asking, like, hey, how do we get involved? Departments down yeah. uh, west of Lake of the Ozarks, uh, departments up by uh, Hannibal. Hannibal, Missouri, and mm-hmm. way down south of Deloge, we would be getting a- emails asking for, for equipment. And what, we, what we're donating to these guys is... And th- this is the part of our foundation that I'm excited about and does the mental health part of it. She's in, into that more th- so than I am, but we're donating equipment bags to these guys um, and law enforcement geared uh, trauma kits. So we're not trying to equip these guys to go out and be paramedics, but when a policeman gets shot or stabbed, um, uh, we have not found anybody that's carrying Vaseline gauze in their uh, patrol cars. So we supply them with trauma dressings, Vaseline gauze, uh, tourniquets, tactical tourniquets, um, CPR mask. Yes. Um, after we, we had donated to quite a few departments, and I, how long was it? A month after we left Herman, Missouri, wasn't even a month. They had the yeah. two two police officers that were shot out there. So it's it's a good feeling knowing that we're supplying these guys with equipment that departments just typically don't supply. You have to buy your own flashlights. Well, flashlights, 80, 90, 100 bucks. For a good one, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when we get into a lot of these departments outside of the metropolitan area, these guys are getting maybe $100 a year or $200 a year uniform allowance to buy that doesn't go anywhere. A pair of pants. Buy a is, pair of pants. Is yeah. Eighty bucks. Yeah. A shirt, sixty bucks. A coat's two hundred fifty. A holster is two hundred bucks now. And and we've talked to these guys that have said they're so grateful to get this equipment. And they're they're like, you know, when I got to pay eighty bucks for a pair of pants, I, I I'm not going out looking to buy a hundred dollar flashlight. And um, it was it's been pretty eye opening to get out and see what these what little these guys are working with, and the fire departments are the same way. Yeah. So when you when you get all the product, are you buying the product in bulk? Is it all donated? Like how how does that work? We're pretty much buying wholesale. Okay. Um, we found one vendor who who gives it to us pretty much a little over their cost. Good. Um, which is is a huge break for us. Um, typically when if we the whole gear bag itself with all the equipment in it would cost a first responder if they bought it out of pocket three three hundred fifty dollars we can roughly get it for a hundred to 175 dollars 150 175 dollars so we're saving some money and then we strictly go on donations we we do do a couple fundraisers we're policemen we don't know how to fundraise (laughs) um i tell people when i go to events you can put me on a homicide scene with four dead people a car accident you know a, a major flood going on at the same time and i can deal with that but you put me in front of a group of people asking for money. I can't do that. Well, I don't mi- know how to do that. Mimicking the the St. Louis Foundation. So I looked it up and it started in 2007. 
and obviously they're doing something right, which I'm glad because in two years' time, you guys have created a wave of over 100 or 800 people. That That's phenomenal. Yeah, the difference with them is we're, we're working strictly on, on donations. Right. These guys are CEOs, and if, if they want to buy boots for all the policemen, they go to Boeing and say, hey, we want to buy boots. And then the CEO or somebody there just writes a check. Here you yeah. go. And here I'm doing a trivia night or like well, we trying to do a cornhole event. or We did a trivia night um, last year. Last year, I guess it was in mm-hmm. April in of last year. Okay, and, or this year, and April that was held year. up in Arnold, and we profited nineteen thousand dollars from that. But then the yeah. following week, we went out and bought twenty four thousand dollars worth of boots for these guys. He did. <laughs> so you know, and we're looking, we're always looking at things like what what can we do next for these guys? And we want to, we I want to make it clear that we don't donate to departments. We donate to the boots on the ground. Right. Uh, this is we only buy stuff that the officer would have to come out of pocket to buy. And everybody's got to buy boots. And every policeman should have a couple pair of boots because in the wintertime or in the rain, they mm-hmm. get wet. You want a dry pair of boots to put on and boots are not cheap, no. as you know. So we just did that for several departments and we're going to expand and do that even more. Yes. But um, right now we're, we're trying to plan a fundraiser trivia night um, that we've got scheduled for April 12th. And that'll be in, we're going to have to do that in Festus. Yes. I hope people understand how selfless it is to be a police officer or an EMT or firefighter. When you have to buy your own gear, you're already doing a selfless job. You're there to help people. And outside the metropolitan area, these guys make $14, dollars an hour. Oh my God. You can go out at McDonald's right now. Yeah. Exactly. You can make that at McDonald's and not get shot at. Right. And, I was and have just... to deal with. I was just getting ready to say that. I think that one of the things that maybe the listening audience doesn't know is how poor the pay is into the police department. Yes. When, uh, it was many years ago, but when I first came out of the military and I had to make the choice of like, what am I going to do with my life? I had looked at going to law enforcement mm-hmm. because th- I didn't have a lot of applicable skills. When you come out as a combat engineer, my first job out of the army was a security guard because I didn't have any other real qualifications other than carrying a gun. Mm-hmm. So it seemed logical that being a police officer was something that I should look into. And I looked into St. Louis County, which had a pretty good program. They had a, um, you go to the uh, police academy, they pay you for going to the police academy. It was pretty decent. And their pay scale wasn't too bad. But even their pay scale, I believe at the very, very top at that time, topped out about $65,000. And I'm sure it's probably a little higher now. But uh, when I looked at going into St. Louis Metro, they were paying $24,000 a year. And I, I looked at that then, you know, just after coming home from Iraq, after being in a war zone. And as I realized, like, this is a war zone. Yes. Like, these people are working in real life, active war zone every single day for $24,000 a year. And there's no way. I was like, nope, I'm out. That's not going to happen. I'm not going to risk my life for that. And, you know, I made the decision to kind of walk away. So when you have all of these people that are making in, in who knows what the pay is today, it's, it's probably in the 30s. You know, About, th- yeah, yeah, it's right? not very much higher than it was. I would imagine it's not more than 10 grand more. Um, but you got somebody that's working inner city streets of St. Louis, one of the most dangerous cities in the United States, with areas that are legitimately dangerous at $30,000 a year, and they still have to buy their own equipment. And do the job. Which is absolutely... Mm-hmm. And then you you attach that to the stress and, and all of the other stuff that's going on there. Like, this is a really thankless job. Yep. Yes. And then when you look at 
what has happened socially with the outcry against police and everything else that's going on there it's like oh man you know i i told my wife just a few years ago when all this stuff was going on in st louis over the um the riots and the shootings and and things like that but i said i am so glad that i didn't choose to be a police officer because i couldn't imagine what it's like to be a police officer at this particular point in time my son wanted to go into law enforcement when he turned 21 and i i told him you can be anything you want to be in life but one thing you're not going to be is a police officer and Thank God he chose, he became an electrician. He's doing very well. He doesn't have to worry about getting sued or shot or stabbed. And What's what's even more upsetting too is growing up, you know, we go through 9-11 and that really united the country as, as one. But back then, any first responder regardless was a hero. They don't have that image right. anymore, which is disgusting. Right. Well, the, the riots, um, Michael Brown, George Floyd, th- that turned the police into the enemy. And it wasn't the police that's the enemy, Um the media villainized us 100% and it it it's never recovered it's never recovered from it and and nobody wants to be the police now it used to be a noble i mean we had waiting lists 2 3 years of waiting lists for people who wanted to be policemen especially and, former military people and former military people but you know when you're overseas you're you're the international police you're over there policing other countries trying to keep us safe and the police here at home are the we're the domestic police. Well, we it, make it. It killed all credibility. It, it killed did. all trust. Like there's nothing there anymore. What's no, it? nobody, nobody wants to be the police anymore. And and even kids, you know, they're scared of us. And nobody wants us in their neighborhoods. They scream they want the police because of all the crime happening. But then when we go there, they don't want us there. And it's it's sad to see that because they people need the police in a lot of these communities. And and there's several that want us, but because we're so villainized. They don't want them. Well, it's just hard. I want to run a theory by you Mm -hmm. that I have shared with several people. I may even have shared on this show, but I've never shared this with any law enforcement. So I would like to see how close I am. Mm -hmm. Also, maybe if I if 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 you guys could shine a different perspective on it, that would be great. But one of the things that I have always told people about, especially as we were going through the riots and we were going through the the protest against police in St. Louis and there, I don't want to get into the details of those situations because it, it's it's immaterial. Yes. What is material is the 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 psyche of the police officers that are working in those areas when they are in theater, and I noticed that with myself. Like when I first deployed, I was ultra sensitive to my environment. I was ultra sensitive to what was going on. I I was everything was a threat and everything was high threat. And then the longer that I'm there the more bias I become, the more profiling I become, the more I start to desensitize myself to my environment and my situation. And it's like, what I tell people is, if I'm sitting there on guard duty, and all of a sudden this Honda Accord drives by, and the next thing you know, we're in a firefight with a Honda Accord, then every time I see a similar car in a similar situation, my brain goes back to thinking, Hey, look, this person's going to shoot at me. Yes. But like, uh, you know, George said earlier is, is he's like, you don't know who your enemy is. So now you put yourself in the middle of a city. 
Now you put yourself in where everybody looks the same and you don't know what those threat environments are going to be and your reaction to those could be different. You get desensitized, which is why in a war zone they rotate. So I was part of the initial war effort. So I was part of the burn breakers back in 03 and then uh, I did I stayed up and through September of 03. So we did Operation Iraqi Freedom and then we moved on to Enduring Freedom and so I was there for both the initial war effort and the show of force rotation and they rotated our group out because we weren't stable enough for the stabilization efforts we were still too militarized they mm -hmm. had to rotate groups that have not been actively engaged in the fighting so that they would be more likely to police the area accurately instead of going first to violence or first to you know whatever action that we were going to take and you don't get that in law enforcement. You know, you get the guy that's working the same beat, the same street yeah. for years and years and years. And if it's possible to get that militarized, that stuck into that mindset for seven and a half, eight months, I can't imagine what it's like over the years. And I think that that's something that people don't consider enough when they're when they're looking at law enforcement mm -hmm. and asking themselves, like, what? how many situations has that person been through? How many similar situations has that person been to? That guy could have literally got stabbed last year in the exact same situation that you are seeing him overreact to right now. And you don't know. Yes. And they're not treated for it. And they're not treated for they're it. They're not treated. They don't get any mental health services regarding that. They're given three or four days off. They have to see a psychiatrist and then they're expected to come back to work. And even before... That's just in the last probably 10 years that they had to see a psychiatrist. Before that, now you were is, given a beer is that and expected to be at work the next is day. Is that time off with pay? Yes. yes. It is with pay? It is with pay. So what happens if, if an officer says, I'm not okay? I just went through this event. I've had three or four days off. I'm not okay. What's the resources here? Well, they put them on limited duty, and then that's a stigma. You take them off the. They take street, them off the street. Them they put them on a desk, and then they're labeled. So they punish them. It's almost to them. It's a punishment. Desk. And with that, so. Like we were saying earlier, I'm a commercial insurance. So that mm -hmm. all that is is avoiding a work comp claim. That's all that is. Yes. And they, they, the, so the officers don't admit to in house mental health services when they have a problem. It's so unethical because oh my God. they know they're going to be labeled and they're scared of what's going to happen. They're going to be taken off the street. They might be transferred out of the unit they're in. They, you know, like some of these guys in our SWAT tactical unit, they'll, they'll never admit they have a problem until it gets too great because they know they'll be taken off the SWAT team. And that's an elite group. Um, and so we do have a lot of guys that suffer and si suffer silently. Mm -hmm. My uh, blood pressure this, just went up 40 points. <laughs> this is my opinion, but given my experience, my opinion is that the politicians and the commanders of the de departments do not care. No, they don't. Period. They do not care. All they want is warm bodies out there policing. And sometimes I question that. And going back to what you were talking about, cycling people, it's kind of funny because when I first came on the police department 33 years ago, um, the north side of the city was the war zone and the south side of the city was more laid back. And over my career, I watched South St. Louis deteriorate. And now you tell me if you disagree. I think that there's not, there's six police districts in St. Louis City and I don't think there's a district that you could consider a retirement district anymore. No. Every every South St. Louis is just as violent as North St. Louis. So you take a guy that works Walnut Park up north and you bring him down south and 
And now he's in Dutchtown neighborhood. Dutchtown has got as much crime, violent crime, as Walnut Park. You can change the scenery. So, You're just not changing what's happening. So they they even might be more a little more hyper vigilant because they're not aware of their surroundings as much. Where when you get comfortable in a district for a while, you know exactly which way somebody's going to run, and you know your way around. But then they transfer you south, and you haven't been down there, so you don't know who the players are. You don't know who. Uncharted you know, territory. Uncharted territory. Yeah, you're going in almost blind. So and... conversely, uh, several years ago, I was in Colorado. We were at Rocky Mountain National Park, and I uh, started talking to a U.S. park ranger and uh, went up and identified myself, and we started talking about his equipment and his job, and he was asking me questions about my job. And he goes, uh, he goes, how many arrests do you make in, like, a year? And I said, a year? And uh, a hard-working policeman could make 30 arrests a month without a, he's like you got to be kidding because there's three rangers that work Rocky Mountain National Park and included including all three of those guys they made a total of 10 arrests the year before that was it and he said he goes I wouldn't know how to police in an urban environment and I I feel the same way I wouldn't know how to police in a rural environment like that I mean I wouldn't how do you even function and uh, the guy he made sense he goes you know the people most of the 98% of the people I meet are people like you they're they're tourists they want to be here they're good people and and I when I walked away I was like man that would be awesome to have a job like that I I asked the guy I go well what do you do every day? He goes, well, today I'm driving my truck on the roads. And yesterday I rode my horse on the trails. And I was like, my, my God, <laughs> that's almost us. paradise. Yeah, that's vacation yeah. for us. Yeah. That's work. Yeah. You get paid? You get paid yeah, to no do that? Kidding. You get paid to ride a horse all day? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to desensitize. Like you just said, a, a busy officer can make 30 arrests in a month. People don't realize when you get arrested, it's not a good situation. They're not like, Right. Happy, like, oh, please take me in. No, something that I used to tell people is nobody ever calls us to their house to, to say, hey, I'm I hope you're having a nice day. I'm glad right. to see you. Happy never. Thanksgiving. Here's, right. yeah. Yeah, here's a meal for you. We it get never, in, never happened. In times that, by how many times every single month, every single year, that compounds going back to the mental health? How do you cure from that? If you, you get the three days unpaid and talk to a psychiatrist or whomever, and you have to forcefully say, I'm okay, because if not, you're going to be ultimately punished and demoted or put on a different job how do you heal you don't. i absolutely believe that it it makes every law enforcement officer and i don't care what kind of community you're working in cynical yeah we become There's, very cynical you just you shove it down you, you have you to lock it in a box and you just pray that something doesn't sugar it to make it come out pandora's box has got to be overflowing and 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 i've said this and i'm sorry to interrupt you but um they always talk about how the police are militarized but if you don't deal with their mental health, then you have an unhealthy department. Right. And you have officers who are going to overreact. Because like you said, he could have been stabbed in that same situation a year ago. He could have been shot at a year ago in that same area. Uh, we've had officers um, who've been shot on different occasions, and they get right There's back. There's one up there it. now. I just saw in the media the other day. I'm not going to say his name, but you'll know who I know I'm who talking it is. about. Yeah. He's been shot multiple times on the job. And I was on his very first scene when he was shot with him. I was with him. But if we don't treat that mental health of these guys, and, and he didn't get treatment until just recently um, from his first incident, but if, if we don't treat him, then, then you have very unhealthy, very mentally unstable officers out there. 
Um, we had an officer who lost his wife, and we're not going to get into that one either. That was all over the news, um, where his wife was a police officer as well. He was so angry that if if they, in the slightest resistance to him was a fight, you know, where somebody's just like, wait a minute, you're not going to arrest me. He was. They were on the ground. Mm-hmm. He was using violence to take them down because his anger was just out there, and he didn't know how to deal with it because he wasn't getting help. Um so and, what do you find from these officers in these units that you're that you've worked with that you're going to visit now? What are they asking you for? What is the help that they're looking for? The couple that I've helped so far um, have been addiction issues and they're trying to find help for that. And they believe if they get their addiction issues under control, that'll help them start dealing with their P- they realize they have PTSD and they're putting a band-aid on it with their addiction. Um, we have a couple places we will send them that I send them, um, that has been very effective in the past for officers. Is the addiction mostly like, uh, pharmaceuticals and alcohol? Um, it's alcohol and pharmaceuticals. Yeah. Um, morphine, you know, they, they start taking prescription medication and then if the prescription medication, and that could be just from an injury, people don't realize how addictive, you know, morphine and codeine is. The opiate. uh, Opiates. Yeah. And, and they become addicted to them. So then they from an injury of a being shot or being stabbed or just being in a car accident. And then they want, they need that to numb what's happening to them. And, and unfortunately I see it getting a lot worse before it gets better. I agree. And, and yes. I'll, I'll tell you why all across the United States for the last couple of years, they've been talking about defunding law enforcement. So you've got a very much police departments are really hurting for manpower all over the country. When I came on the police department, I think we had about 1,400 policemen just for the city of St. Louis. I know we were... We had 2,000 when I came on, so you've had more. Okay. Now they're down to 900. Jesus. So they've cut manpower. Now you've got, got, in theory, you've got uh, six guys doing the work of 18. Now you may recall in the media recently they had... The media wanted to downplay it, and they said uh, all the police officers that were scheduled in one district in the city called in sick. And the police department took the stance of, well, that's exaggerating a little bit because the fact is only two police officers called in sick. And that's true. There were only two police officers that called in sick. What they didn't tell you was that there are supposed to be 18 police officers scheduled for that shift, and they only had two. Now, when you've got two guys doing the work of 18, and you make them go in and do that five, six, and seven days in a row where you're running call to call to call, and they got no downtime, your sick time is going to go through the roof. Yes. Your officers are not going to be mentally alert. They're going to be taking shortcuts. And I'm not I'm not going to do this on, on air, but I can tell you some major mistakes have been made by officers recently up there that you just, I shake my head at. And I know it's because they are so overworked and so overstressed. And it's just going to get worse. Yeah, there's no critical critical thinking. There's no, a lot of times it's not a thought process, it's a reaction. Well, the the answer isn't less funding. It's more funding. Right. Yes. It's more policing. It's more training. More training. It, it's more, uh, 
It's more everything. They don't you're have to paid. just sit back and throw money at it. They can do it a lot smarter. But but you show me a police department that hasn't cut manpower in a big metropolitan city, and I, I'll be surprised. I mean, all these big departments, I was just seeing the news this morning, New York City is doing it. They're going to do a hiring freeze in New York City. So I, I was just looking at the, the population census, and the population isn't going down. And yet the police force is cut in half. The police force is cut in half, and there's more violent crimes now than there were when we came on. Well, and what I find so funny about this is, so I'm an economist, and uh, when you look at economics and you look at, you know, you just follow the money and you can find the the meaning behind most things. But this particular issue actually goes opposite of the money, which is surprising to me. Corporations benefit from a safe, secure environment in order to be able to sell goods. We have to have a safe environment in order to do business in. And when you start directly reducing funding to the police departments, when you start lowering the amount of police officers and you increase the... Um, the, the danger of the area that you're trying to do commerce in, then you're not going to be selling goods. You're not going to be selling products. This is defeating to your agenda. I'm really surprised that there isn't more organizations out there providing funding to the police on their own behalf mm -hmm. just to increase the safety and the commerce of the area. So yeah, that's kind of interesting to me that this one area has been so socially dogmatically driven that we've really started to lose the economic connection to why this exists in the first place. Exactly. I'd, I'd like to bring up two points on this subject. First of all, if you were a major corporation, would you even consider throwing a convention in the city of San Francisco right no. now? That, that I can't wrap my head around how much that city has declined in just the, the last year. So when you look at, at economics in St. Louis City and you think, okay, these people should be throwing money at an area like St. Louis Hills is a, is a good example. Mm -hmm. The Central West End, the Grove neighborhood, downtown area, they all have, they all pay t extra taxes to hire off-duty policemen to provide extra security, security in their their neighborhoods. Now, I personally find that a good idea. I think it, it does help. Uh, in the last year, I've heard the mayor of St. Louis City doesn't like that and feels that it's not fair to poor residents <laughs> because if they don't have the money to pay for the extra security, they don't get it. Well... You know, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I've seen these uh, entertainment venues like The Grove attracts criminals. Um, the uh, the Foundry is another. It's a neat place. I don't know if you guys have been down there. Yeah. The facility mm -hmm. is neat, but it's an attractant to criminals. Mm -hmm. And when people start getting carjacked and shot and robbed down there, they're not going to want to take their families well, down you, there to you've spend money. Well, you've seen that nope. a few years ago. Let's use the Galleria, for example. And for the listening audience that's outside of St. Louis, the Galleria is our largest mall and was the largest mall in the Midwest mm -hmm. for a period of time. Uh, then I think, you know, you Opry Mills Mall out of Nashville, maybe a little bit bigger. Yes. And then we had the uh, we had the Mills Mall here as well. It was Outlet that, Mall. Yeah, that mm -hmm. ended up going out. Um, but don't leave out don't leave out Union Station. This here, is true. Because Union Station <laughs> was, was a beautiful. That was a beautiful. Was amazing. But yeah. Then they 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 let the wrong element take over right. down there and it ruined it. Yeah. You yeah. have you have the you have the Galleria. 
which is right in the middle of Brentwood, yes. which is one of the richest, most industrial areas of all of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And you watched that mall decline to the point of almost going out of business until they hired their own private security. Because what they did is they put the Metrolink in and then everybody could get from the inner city. They could now get to Brentwood where they couldn't normally Mm -hmm. go. And then they started getting high crime. They started having a lot of violence. They got to the point there where they had curfew restrictions. They had dress code. Yes. That for a few years there, it got very serious until they were able to correct the problem. And thankfully they did because Mm -hmm. the gallery is now a person perfectly safe mall to go to. I, I spend a lot of time there. I enjoy it. But that definitely wasn't the case. And like you brought up about Union Station, you know, Union Station was completely wrecked due to crime. Well, they did the same thing. They had the curfew restrictions they had. You couldn't be in here without a parent. You couldn't come in dressed a certain way. Um, Fairview Heights was the same way, but Fairview Heights really did not recover because they didn't address it. But that's the social outcry that I wish we would start hearing. Mm-hmm. I wish that the general public, the ones that are not the bad actors, mm-hmm. this is really a small group of people. This is a small group of bad actors that get together, that cause trouble, that are doing these things. And we're getting the social outcry to the police departments, the people that are actually trying to fix this problem. And then we're not getting any social outcry to eliminating the bad actors. I am more angry at the person that's committing the crime, at the person that is creating the unsafe environment so that I can't go enjoy things that are in my city to go do. I should be able to walk to the arch at 8, 9 o'clock at night and not have to worry about getting mugged on my way there. Yes. And the reality is you're rolling the dice every time you do that. Have I done that without being mugged? Absolutely. I've also watched professional hockey players come in for their first day in town and they want to go see the arch and they get mugged on their way there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a different environment and it's hard to promote tourism. It's hard to promote business. It's hard to promote anything or even the social enjoyment of the things that are in our area when we're constantly having to battle against the criminal element that exists. Yeah, it's it's very, very sad that um, the, the police get blamed. Even if, if we're addressing the, the criminal aspect of it, we're too hard on them. They're just kids. They need some place to go. They're just, you know, it's okay. You know, who cares if they want to steal a car? Who cares if they want to, you know. <laughs> it's against the law, that's well, why. <laughs> yeah, but these people are like, but it's okay. You know, they're not, they haven't hurt anybody by stealing a car. And, and it's it's become socially acceptable, like you said, for these some of these people to do what they're doing. And it's it's not well, there's like no morals anymore. Short you know. of law enforcement, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody that agrees with this statement. But the reason why crime is the way it is, is because there are no consequences today. Oh, 100 mm-hmm. percent. In yeah. fact, that segues perfectly into. A story that I would like to tell. So it was uh, a few years ago. I actually don't remember the date. Um, we we went up to Grand Boulevard and there was a veterinary clinic right there on Grand and 44. And we were volunteering for this rescue organization. It was me and my ex-wife. And um, we had to pick up this dog. And I walk inside and we deal with all that. They say, hey, bring the car around to the loading dock. I bring the van back around to the loading dock. I pop open the back. I do the whole thing. I'm waiting on this guy to come out. And he doesn't come, doesn't come, doesn't come. Finally, he uh, he opens the door and he says, hey, come inside, help me. I have him in the hallway. I need help. So I walk inside. I go into the hallway. I grab the dog. I turn around and walk out. Van is gone. 
just gone. And so I said, well, what happened? You know, I don't live in St. Louis, so I live in the rural areas and have lived in the rural areas for quite some time. Getting your van stolen in 30 seconds is not normal here, right? I can go start my car in my driveway and let it run for probably the day and nobody is going to mess with my car. So I hadn't even conceptualized the idea that I was putting myself in a situation to lose my vehicle. And when uh, we called the police, the police officer showed up. It was a St. Louis police department. And uh, he had said that that was his sixth stolen car that day on that shift just for him actually i'm shocked that they even arrived that they showed up because they take most of them on the phone they did yeah they did very little they said that they had a um that they had a car that drives around that scans for license plates Mm -hmm. that if uh most likely what people do is they take these cars to go commit crimes in and that it would usually be recovered if they committed a crime in the car uh, or they would just scan around and see so uh nothing happened and then we ended mm-hmm. up going home the the following week, and I realized how much of an epidemic this was. I thought somebody is just driving this vehicle. This has current plates. My registration mm-hmm. isn't set to expire. It had a full tank of gas. I would imagine this is just a daily driver for someone at this point, especially if there's no risk of getting caught. And it's past three or four and hands. It's so moved around. yeah. So I uh, I went back up there the following week, and I just started driving in circles. I made a grid. And I just started driving a grid around the veterinary clinic. And then lo and behold, a few hours later, I come around a corner. There's the van sitting on the side of the road. So we call the police department. The police department takes forever to show up. (laughs) And uh, in fact, the funny part of this story is we were visited by another police officer before the one that we had called for recovering the car because the neighbors had reported suspicious activity. So most likely... (laughs) The people that had stolen the car had called the cops on us for being suspicious in their area. Probably, yeah. Right? So They're messing with our car. Yeah. So we're sitting there on the side of the road, and I'm looking up at the houses, and I see people coming in and out of the houses. And I, I watch this guy walk up and go in his car, takes what looks like a GPS, and walk inside, which we had a GPS in the van that was no longer there. Um, and then all of the stuff that was in the back of the van, because we had dog kennels and all this stuff from the rescue, mm-hmm. is on a porch not 50 yards away sitting on this front porch of this house oh my gosh okay so they the police officers finally arrive uh we had a second set of keys so we opened up the car uh the guys that stole the vehicle his clothes were in there his driver's license was in there he was so (laughs) intent on keeping this vehicle that he had took we had a detachable face radio yeah so he was worried about somebody stealing the radio he took the detachable face in with him oh my gosh But when you talk about no consequence, none of the police officers that showed up would even go to the door and approach anyone at any of these houses that were, like I said, they had his ID. It would have been something as simple as knocking on a door. Mm -hmm. Would not be done. They said, if this person gets arrested in the future, then you can file charges. And I said, I will 100% like to file charges. I said, I'm pretty upset. That is if they notify you when he's arrested. Then... That is that was I don't know how many years ago that had to be at least 2016 2017 mm-hmm. and uh, I've never been able to follow up on that incident but it was a very eye opening incident because just like what you said 
if I would have done that and I was living in Farmington, Missouri, and a, a shout out to the Farmington Police Department because I really love those guys. Like it's it's very rare that you live someplace that has a good enough police department that you actually appreciate. Yes. And they're top notch. Love Farmington uh, PD because they made my my experience living in Farmington excellent. Um, but if I would have done that in Farmington, I would be in jail. Nobody would have let me go steal a car and be in that exact same scenario and not have repercussions associated with it. But you get to the city, now you've got an underfunded police department, you don't have enough police officers to go around, you got a lot more crime, you got a much more dangerous area. A very then, much more liberal court system, and the judge's hands are tied. Right. Now, one thing that you could you can verify so easily is when you read about a crime, look at the bonds that are being set. In St. Louis City, you could you could kill somebody and get a ten thousand dollar bond and be on an ankle bracelet. You come out here to Jefferson County, and I see these guys are getting they commit a carjacking and they got a five hundred thousand dollar cash bond. Right. Well, the last carjacking like, was a million-dollar bond. Yeah. Yeah. There's I no mean, incentive for the criminal to stop being a no, criminal when no, you put no. that environment together. And then, like you said, then it becomes normalized. Yes. If you mention to somebody, like I had on several occasions, oh, my car got stolen. Oh, that ain't that big of a deal. Oh, it was to me. Right. When my car disappeared, it's it was a, a very deal, big yes. deal. You know, that wasn't a small thing in my life because I didn't make a lot of money at that time. I had no way to replace the car. Like this was a, that's why I risked my own safety to go mm -hmm. recover my own car. See, I think because that I is a do travesty that, that a victim has to go look for their own car. And I think it's even worse that you see your property up on somebody's porch and nobody would go up there and take it. I Could can tell you that I, I would not have handled it that way. Um, and I, I can't answer to why those officers handled it that way. I will tell you that I think in today's world, you got policemen that are prioritizing their calls while I can either go up in the porch and get this guy's dog kennel back or I can go respond to this officer in need of aid call or this armed robbery that just occurred. So, again, when you only got two to four policemen doing the work of 18 policemen, then these guys are making decisions that don't have positive effects for citizens. Well, I'm really happy there's people like you guys out there with the foundation that you have that really helps benefit these guys and girls that are literally the boots on the ground. Yes. Giving them the equipment that they need to do their job efficiently and, and safely, honestly. And I, I will tell you another, another thing, too, that I've found uh, very satisfying for me is that there's been a couple first responders that we've come across that we've been able to help out with family situations that were unexpected and they were struggling and our Ann and I talked about it and we were able to step in and help these guys and it's very very gratifying to be able to see us help somebody like that so that is a very touching thing a lot of these departments that we show up and we donate this stuff to uh, some of these guys are choked up and, you know, they're thanking us for donating all this equipment. And uh, something else I'd like to go back to, uh, I was going to say earlier, since we started this, a lot of people have come up to me and said, I never realized that, that first responders had to buy their own stuff. I never, we just took it for granted that the police department would buy it for these guys. And it's not just the police department. It's fire it's and EMS. EMS. Yeah. So, Volunteer and when, firefighters have it a little easier. 
they're funded and they they supply the equipment because these guys are free they're volunteering their time so those are a little bit better and then there's fire districts and fire fire protection districts, districts are much better funded than yeah. a city fire department um and it, and it depends too on it's the a learning process base. for us you know you look this. at jefferson county just jefferson county alone um i think the the most populous um city would be arnold, arnold. and mm -hmm. they've got a great tax base jefferson county sheriff's department recently got a pretty good bump in pay so they're they're attracting officers from all over actually uh when you get anywhere south of that man the pay and the benefits Our, yeah south or west greatly de uh decreased mm -hmm. we were way down in southern missouri and donating to a police department and we're talking to these guys and they have two police cars on their department and they were both broke and the city didn't have the money to fund to fix them and i said what are you doing for cars and the, the chief said we're driving our own cars oh my god and I, I i again i can't wrap my head around the liability that these guys are taking my insurance brain's and, going crazy well yes. and you know you <laughs> yeah. were talking earlier about people looking at am i only going to make this amount of money to be a policeman you ain't going to get rich that's for sure so p people are going into the first responder fields police ems and fire not because they're they, they're looking to make a lot of money it's a calling for them. it is a calling in your you want to give back to your community and um when you're driving your own cars to calls that's and that's just incredible i just i don't know how these guys are doing it's it. blasphemy well and then you know you have to put a suspect in your car and at the same back seat you put your kids in right mm -hmm. you don't want that and I, I would never imagine putting anybody in my car and we seem to have the same conversations with every department we go to. And I, I've asked several of these guys when they tell me what they're making. It's like, man, how how do you raise a family? You know, you got a wife and two kids. So you've got four people on $16 an hour. And I, I just can't believe that. It's horrible. It's, yeah, it's, it's really hard. Well, I mean, they struggle. And it depends on the area. That's a lot. It, it does it depend is. on yeah, the area. Because... In, in some of these areas that we've been into, like, we're paying attention to the houses along the roadways, and you're like, oh my god, these these people are poor down here, mm -hmm. so you know there's no yeah. tax base to support paying your policemen and firemen. No, I did uh, taxes for many years, and so when I was doing taxes actively, I was living in the Farmington area, so we had Deloge, Lettington, uh, Bonterre, mm -hmm. Farmington. All of these police officers would come through our offices, and we'd prepare their tax returns, and it would blow me away. You know, somebody that worked at St. Francis County Sheriff's Department, for example, the entirety of St. Francis County had a very low number of people actually working. And I don't I don't want to guess the number. I, I think it was under 10. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's a huge area. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would imagine that's hundreds of square miles yes. by the time you get out into all of those areas in St. Francis County. And these guys are making somewhere around twenty-two dollars to $24,000 a year. Yes. Right? To, to do that. And the local police departments were the same. Lettington, most of the officers that I did there made between twenty four and 26000 a year. They have five officers on staff to do the entire town and area. And people don't realize this. Well, Lettington's a small town. Yeah, but the county isn't. Right. No, and you might only Look have how, one officer working in, yeah, a, in a day. That It may take you a considerable amount of time to travel around that pound, depending on where you're going. Well, and then imagine if they get a car stop, somebody just driving through town, you know, a violent offender or somebody, and they need backup. Their backup's 
the county. Minutes. And they could be 45 minutes away. We had one agency we gave to, like their backup could be two hours. If they're on the other side of the county, it would take two hours to get across the county. Well, I've asked, there were several of them I've asked. It's like you got one officer responding to a domestic situation at two o'clock in the morning. What do you do for a backup? And they're like, well, we just got to call somebody in from home. I can't, I, you're looking at a minimum of 45, 45 minutes, minutes to get somebody out of bed, Maybe, get yeah. dressed and come out. Half hour, at least. I was going to say that, like going to domestic violence and imagine a shootout starting yeah. and you're on your own for two hours. Right. And that's where most yeah. officers are ambushed is at domestics. Mm-hmm. And okay. And, you know, uh, another thing <laughs> We too, can go into a whole other story on that. You're just I got a great story. <laughs> for at response times. Um, that's another w- reason why I'm so passionate about making sure we supply these guys with trauma kits. We started getting into some of these areas, and I would I'd ask them, I'm like, hey, in St. Louis City, you are literally seven minutes away from a trauma center. You throw an officer, get shot up there, stabbed, you throw him in a car, and you drive him, you're there. And some of these places we've asked, we're like, well, where's the closest hospital here? And they're like, uh, it's two hours south yeah and if we're lucky there's a there's a helicopter close and we can get our flight we can get flight in and that's if 45 they're lucky that's yeah. like st jen what's yeah. your story what's your story all right you got so, me on the hook here oh it's good i'm, I'm worried and, and i think i've told you about this so Gosh, it'll be a repeat yeah. for you and it'll be new for you guys though <laughs> the audience i have no idea i don't remember what the hell i say on the mic so <laughs> people do that all the time they're yes. like remember this and i'm like no, no. i don't have a clue <laughs> but uh so here i was i was doing taxes down in farmington and i had this client come in who ended up being a, a a good friend of mine we did martial arts together and did jujitsu and some muay thai and stuff like that and um he said, man, the craziest thing happened to me the other day. And I said, really? I said, what's that? And he goes, you didn't hear about it on the news? I said, no. I said, I didn't hear about nothing on the news. And so he lived one neighborhood away from me. And so those that don't know Farmington, Farmington has basically four prominent neighborhoods. And I lived in one of the four. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was another neighborhood that was similar to mine just across the street, which is pretty common down there. And uh, so he lived in the one adjacent to mine. And uh, so he said they were laying in bed one night and it was like uh, 10, 11 o'clock at night. And he heard his basement window break. And he had one of those crawl space basements where, you know, the little half windows. Mm -hmm. So this guy had busted out this half window and crawled through there into his basement. And most of the homes in Farmington don't have walkout basements, especially in these areas. So it's pretty common just to have those encasement windows. Yes. And so the guy went into his basement and he said he realized that somebody was in the home. So him and his wife, they hold up in the bedroom and uh, he has a he has a uh, a Kimber that he carries, and he said, so I grabbed my forty five and I locked myself in the bedroom, and I said, we're not going to leave. And so they call the police, and the police show up, and the police inform him on the phone uh, that the individual has armed himself with his guns that were in the basement. So he had a uh, gun room. This is a good testament to why you should have a safe that locks yes okay so he had a gun room in his basement and the guy went in and loaded his ar-15 and all this other stuff in his basement and was getting ready to have a shootout with the police and then so the police were like we can't come inside to get you you need to leave the house so he's like what like I've got to like leave my bedroom, walk down the stairs, out the front of the door, while this guy is in my basement, yeah, lo- locked and loaded and ready to go. So they said, "Yeah, we're sorry, but yes." And so they do. They they exit the bedroom, they go out down the hallway, they get down the stairs, they go out the front of the door, they make it. Everything's great. And he says, "The next thing that they know, 
gunshots start going off. And this guy gets in a legit shootout with the police, with this dude's AR and everything, blowing holes all through his house. Oh, it's going crazy. So long story short, the the Farmington police are very good at what they do. They they took care of the situation. Mm-hmm. They got the guy uh, and it ended. I don't know how it ended. I don't know if they shot him mm-hmm. or if he was just arrested, but they neutralized the situation. And now my, my friend is stuck with a bunch of bullet holes in his house. Yeah. And again, on insurance, how do you... <laughs> Uh, a comprehensive a, claim, I guess. You know, yeah. I'm Bad just, hail. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, of all of the stories I didn't expect to hear in Farmington, Missouri. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in that story. Oh, absolutely. But yes. it, 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 there, there's lessons to be learned about why you should lock up your guns. Mm-hmm. It, it's lessons to be learned that, you know, anybody can enter your house. It doesn't matter if your house is locked up. Like, they can bust a window and just choose to come inside. And um, and then the, the officers that responded, you know, that is another thing. Imagine how outgunned they were in that moment mm-hmm. like this guy has got a fully loaded ar-15 and access to who knows what else yes and they're sitting outside with a bunch of handguns and maybe they have a shotgun maybe they had their own ar i do not know yeah. but in any scenario this is not good well and that's they think they don't want to militarize the police they don't want them having rifles and you know they, these things they but you have to go with the firepower you know, you have to meet because they did it to us. They took our, they took our, our shotguns away from us they at one took, time. They took all the shotguns and we, away from the police. The only one that had Louis rifles City. were our SWAT team. And then the sergeants. The sergeants well, some no, we sergeants. didn't. We but for a while we had nothing. Right. We, they gave us um, storm rifles, which are just long, a nine, mil- nine millimeters. Nine millimeter mm-hmm. carbine. You can't go up against a AR or anything with that. And we fought and fought and fought so they agreed to give us our shotguns back that goes back. back to the politicians the politicians and the commanders cuz at that time the police chief did not want us to have rifles why why in what sense is disarming the force a good idea like where is he, that his thing was liability i can't wrap my head around that kind of thinking but I, they do no. it he I said it was it. a liability issue giving us uh, rifles you're a walking liability because yes. you have to carry a gun to protect I yourself. Know. You'll give us a gun, you'll give us a radio, you'll give us a car, but you can't give us a little more firepower to go against what we're facing Train every us. day. Train they us. Have no common sense. And yeah. for years, we had terrible training. It was and it was all CYA training. Classroom. <laughs> hey, we we taught you. We got your your mandatory eight <laughs> hours of racial profiling done. We got that done, and then yeah. over the years, when people. People complained enough, and and they've worked in some great uh, firearms training, defensive mm-hmm. tactics training, live like almost like live fire stuff. Yeah, I mean they actually put them in simunition, simunition training, training mm-hmm. and um, it was very eye opening. And I was part of that because I was over the academy for a couple of years, where we would record the training and let the guys watch themselves, and that is so eye opening. For the officers, and like I said, you were not trying to do more training. We're trying to do better training. Right. The simulations is great because they get re- there's a penalty when you get shot. You feel the oh, pain. you feel well, it. Yeah. There's a there's a range. Like when I landed in Florida, mm. there was a gun range. They put a vest on, and they had a AI interacting screen that you had to talk to. So if a guy gets out of out of a car and he's got a pistol in his hand, you have to give verbal commands, and he'll act however. Mm-hmm. And there was like one scene where if you and I go in and we're both wearing the, this vest. And we're going against you two, and you guys pull you pull your guns. I get you. He misses you, and you shoot me. I get shocked. 
it's a straight taser vest. Oh there's, my gosh! There's perc- mm-hmm. re- there's Ooh. there's penalties for getting shot. Well, I've been using- hit with some munitions, though. It doesn't feel good either. Yeah, right, right. right. So, <laughs> so that's the kind of training you need. So you realize if you don't do your job efficiently and yeah. obviously correctly, that there is repercussions for that. Yes. Oh yes. Yeah. Just shooting at a target is one thing, but having somebody shoot back at you uh, is a totally different environment. Adrenaline works in a weird way. And Steve, yes, it does. Going back to the St. Louis Police Foundation, they were the ones that bought the AR-15s for the police department, and then they only gave them to the sergeants. Yes. And then they gave them to the police department, but then they wouldn't let them go on the street. And when they get questioned on it, they were like, well, we really don't have the money to buy ammunition to train. And the foundation said, well, okay, we'll we'll buy the ammunition. So they bought the ammunition. Next excuse. Then they tried to fight it again and say, well, we can't put them on the street because we don't have the proper... Uh, security secure uh, the lockup system mechanism in the car and they said okay well we'll pay for those after they did that we finally put AR-15s on the street and then to my knowledge it's still only certain sergeants you have to qualify with it right. and mm-hmm. um, I know they're still fighting to get it to where the police officers can carry it but then I have friends that work in different municipalities there's one municipality in St. Louis County they have top-notch equipment, and every car has got shotgun, AR-15, rechargeable flashlights. They have the equipment. It's a so toolbox. It's out there. Yeah. Those cars it's are a tool, big yeah. toolbox. Yeah. You don't know what kind of tool you're going to need for whatever situation you're going to. Well, exactly. some of these so rural departments that we see, too. Um, they have to we, buy all their own we, stuff, too. But we, we saw this one guy. He opened up this—he's driving a four-wheel drive truck, and he opened it up, and there was a sawed-off shotgun— <laughs> right inside the front door of his car and it's like man that guy's ready that's good yeah could never do that in the city no no but he also had a couple hidden compartments where he had others yeah in the in the truck yeah there was uh like a little flappy moved on the back of the seat that's because he's a redneck and he's at home modifying that on the weekends well one of his guys is doing all the modifications (laughs) on all their cars i actually thought that i was in his tahoe and i looked in the back and i said oh is that you mount your radios up on the ceiling of the he goes oh no that's that's my guns yep so we go out we go back there he hits a button and it drops down and it was an ar-15 and a shotgun and i'm like man that's yeah that's nice. i like so i i personally have a ceiling system for my rifles as well because I, I mean, i'm a hillbilly and i like to go deer hunting so <laughs> but it's th- my whole concept of that was someone wants to break in your vehicle they look down you know yes. people i've put them like oh my god even seen right. that up there i'm like and we've been talking for 20 yeah. minutes that's yeah. the whole point. No one looks up. Everyone no. looks down. They're looking, you know, they're looking around corners. They're looking in drawers. They're looking under beds. Yeah. Looking... So if you know me, don't look up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what you guys have done so far for both myself and I'm sure the captain here and the listening audience is I understand now the need for why you guys are doing what you're doing. Absolutely. And I, I have a lot of respect for you guys and a lot of respect for the mission that you've taken on. What is it exactly that people can do to help your organization? What are some of the things that your organization are involved in? I know you mentioned the trivia night. I know it's donation only. You know, what can we do? What can our listening audience do to help support your guys' mission, to help support law enforcement, and to bring the right type of healing to the people that need it? Well, one thing that we're looking for is corporate sponsorship. Um, That's one way to get a a steady flow of money. And... um, Unfortunately, it does cost, it, whether it's mental health services, whether it's, you know, a lot of times we, these guys pay out of pocket because their agencies really don't supply the right mental health services. And if I can caveat that real quick, 
there's confidentiality when you go to a psychiatrist, supposedly, but it's between client and the physician. The client is the paying customer. So think back, who pays the bills when an officer goes? Not the police officer. The That's police officer why. is we were not talking, the client. So there's we were no confidentiality. Earlier, um, about uh, before we were on the air here about uh, trust issues, and that's why policemen, you won't, you're going to be hard pressed to find a policeman to open up with you and yeah. be honest with you. Let's circle back. What do we need? We need. We, we what need. do we need? So um, it all comes down to, and I hate to say this, but it comes down to money, yes, donations, because that's what we operate off of, and we've had a lot of people want to help us and we i have offered to people if you want to go with us when we make a delivery to a department so you can actually see what's going on what we're donating you people are more than welcome and our books are absolutely open mm -hmm. that's something that we did not address that 100 percent of our funds go toward this foundation towards buying equipment or services for first responders we don't take any money out of this foundation. We both have a, a very decent pension from the police department. So we're not looking to, we are not looking to make money off of this. And we've pretty much got a pretty good system down now where Ann and I put these bags together. We've made our contacts with a couple different vendors, depending on if we're buying police equipment or fire equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and it really does come down to well, and donations. finance. That's yeah, it. it's donations. financial and, and, with our trivia night coming up, and, and I'm looking to possibly do a cornhole tournament because a cornhole place just opened up in Peebly. Um, but donations for baskets even. If, if you can't supply money, maybe you, you have a business or you make candles or you, you know, that you might want to donate something for a raffle or donate something for um, a silent auction. You it know, all, things it like all that. helps. Everything helps because um, people will come spend money, you know. Um, so I'm not, you know. $25 goes a long way with us. It really does. We we could buy eyes, ears, and a trauma kit. Do you have a, a reoccurring donor model or anything like that? Where somebody can just sign up for like a monthly We uh, don't. Donation? We don't. No, we're, I, I'm, we're doing it ourselves and we're not that tech savvy. Um, we could probably work something out that way, but we do have a website, um, which is uh, www.dornfoundation.com. We spell that. Yes, and that is... Um, you can donate straight there. It goes straight into the bank account. And, um, yeah, it's it. It's the easiest. We've tried to make it as easy as possible to donate. We have PayPal, Venmo, Cash App. Um, if there's a way to, to get money, we can we can get it. <laughs> and, you know, uh, like you say, $25 goes a long way. Yeah. So right now what we're really been focusing on lately is buying boots for these guys. Um, we've selected a pair of boots that cost if you were to go in and buy them they're 150 dollars from this vendor if we go in and buy them it, we pay 100 bucks so if somebody donates 100 dollars, you just bought a police officer a pair of waterproof boots and you go through a pair of boots in a, a year. year or two easy mm -hmm. so shit i was thinking six months uh, it depends on how active you are it, yeah, how it, you yeah wear it your doesn't shoes. take long to go through a pair of boots when you're no, using no them. no you know, and seasonal, they're going to get scuffed up. They're going to get holes in them, things like that. But the boots we get are, are they're puncture proof on the bottom. So they're not going to step on something. Um, and I know it sounds funny, but when we, when we meet these guys, I always, I do, I look down at their shoes to see, and 
these guys obviously are not spending their money on boots. No. And I, I get it when you're trying to raise a family of four on $16 an hour. And the, the, the one response I got from a, from a chief of police, he looked at me and I said, how do you raise a family of four on that? He goes, you don't. You have to marry somebody that's got a job that makes money like I did. So he was lucky. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but, but they're not, a lot of them aren't lucky or they have a special but, needs child or the city guys, we couldn't send our kids to public schools. The public schools weren't accredited. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted your kid to get an education, you had to pay for it. Yep. Or if you had a special needs child, you had to pay for that education. So these guys were working three jobs just to pay for their kids' education. I you know. I had to do that. Mm-hmm. I had two kids and uh, went to Lutheran South High School. That was $10,000 a year per kid. And that's not like a bass boat where you can finance it out for No, you got to pay 10000 a year. Up front. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 a struggle, but you know it, it's always going to be a struggle because people um, overlook law enforcement and well, first responders. Well, from someone on the outside looking in, thank you for what you're doing. I mean, it's obviously it's having an impact and and creating waves in the right direction. Thank you. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and like I said, it's carrying on Dave's memory. Cause, Absolutely, because Dave, he was a great man, but he was a swindler, mm-hmm. and if he could get something out of the chief, he did. And when he needed something for his guys, he'd, he'd sway it in such a way that chief's like, yeah, sure, go get it. And then the chief would get the bill and like, what did you do? <laughs> you know, but he did. He made sure his guys were taken care of. And and he was so well respected that they, people did. And he was one of the first ones to start a, um, a business organization within like the sixth district up north. And he got the businesses involved where they actually took... Um, ownership of the police department like hey we're businesses and without our police department like you said economically we can't thrive right so they came in and they did things for us what they could they even like sometimes it was just coming in and doing a barbecue for the guys they'd come set up a station they'd barbecue hamburgers and hot dogs and the guys would get a free meal out of it um and then they were doing christmas presents um maybe buying them something or it came down to where everybody was getting a hundred dollars at christmas time a hundred dollars goes a long way at christmas time for these guys. So um, it was little things that were happening. And, and we and when Dave died, I just wanted to pass that on to let the guys know somebody's looking out for you. Somebody cares about you. And again, it's just not financially. We'll help them with mental. If I have to drive them to Texas to get mental health services, I get it for free and I got to drive them down there. I'll put them in my car and drive them down to Texas. Um, but I want these guys to be as healthy as they can. Well, we've talked about a lot of stuff, and I'm going to make sure that I'll put a link in the description for anybody listening that can get to your website, also link them to any other resources that you have. And they can go to Facebook, too. And I, I was just going to say that a lot of times we'll get uh, we'll get requests for assistance from a police officer or deputy, not the chief. So then we have to have that, that guy put us in contact with their chief, and the chief will ask us, what's the catch? here and the only catch that we have is first we want to take pictures of us donating the equipment so our donors see where the money's going so you can go to facebook and look at all the pictures of our donations mm-hmm. um and they have to sign an and MOU. then and then we we took this class recently on on uh we're on the 501c3 will taught us um good guy that we weren't having a memorandum of understanding signed and now we do that and we make sure that the chiefs know that that equipment that we're donating is going to that police officer that's not the city's equipment that's the police officers and we did run into one instance where we donated to an officer 
And we had previously donated to him at another department. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was over there when you donated. And he goes, yeah, they made me turn all that in when I left. And we were like, no, no, that shouldn't have happened. That's your equipment. So now we've got, yeah. now we run the memorandum of understanding that when you sign for it, we're giving it to your 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 personnel, not it's not the cities. That's well, awesome. I really love what you guys are doing. And uh, I think for the listening audience out there, if you want something to get involved with, it sounds like there's many ways to get involved. There's many ways to help. Yes. Like, like you guys said earlier, you know, $25 makes all the difference in the world. It yeah. does. You know, four people donate $25. That's a pair of boots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for the businesses out there listening especially you know if you own a a, um, a footwear or a clothing store or apparel store like this is a good mission to get involved in that you could be making a huge difference and this is a 501c3 organization yeah. so you get the charitable donation this is your tax guy speaking so <laughs> you'll be able to uh, get some benefits uh, depending on how your organization is uh, incorporated but uh you know Hopefully, more people will take the charge and to get up and to, and to stand behind our law enforcement to, to, to help with what you guys are doing, really supporting the law enforcement from all the different angles. What is it, Ann, that where did the mental health part start? How did we end up at the Missouri Psychedelic Conference? This is a big curiosity. Of uh, well, I, I was always interested in the officer's mental health. I saw a lot of officers struggling being um, the director of the academy for a while and running classes through and just following the officers and, and seeing what they went through. Um, I didn't feel I was affected as much, not realizing how well I compartmentalized things. But I saw a lot of officers struggling and, and trying to get them help was a struggle. And the last two years of my career, I became the mental health coordinator for the department. So um, I was actually able to help some people. Um, the department is very limited and they still are. I don't believe they have a mental health person right now at all. Um, but I took that with me when I left. When when my husband died, I could not mentally stay an officer. It just it affected me in a way that I couldn't I, I couldn't go back to work. Um, and I felt guilty for leaving my officers because I still had so much more I wanted to do with mental health for them. And and I needed I needed an outlet, and I still needed to help them. Well, then I realized leaving the department, I could help them more. Because we're not restricted by what the agency says we have to do. No limitations. There's no limitations. I am not accountable to anybody but myself and God. And I don't have to answer to the police department. I don't have to answer to the city of St. Louis. So when these guys need help, if I have to go outside the box, I can. And a lot of these departments outside of St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Jefferson County. They have nothing. They, they don't have any kind of employee assistance program, and they don't have the finances. Yeah. We were talking uh, to a chief of a smaller municipality, and he was explaining to us that uh, he had two officers that had worked was two it or three suicides, three suicides in like a, a week, and they were apparently pretty grotesque scenes one was really grotesque pretty, and one was a very young hard person for the officers to deal with and he brought up a valid point he's like i'm the chief all i can do is go to these guys and say are you okay and what's this young officer gonna say oh i'm i'm, I'm fine i'm, I'm fine. fine i'm fine and that's the that's they don't have fine. the resources so yeah so i was just kind of a neat thing that came along with the association that ann brought yeah brought and that along. was one of the things i put on there we, we are going to address mental health with them, if it's just us going and talking to them, trying to help them, we're both um, certified in trauma response. Um, 
so we can offer that to them. If it's going after um, an after incident, it could be a, a debriefing we can come help them with. But or we can hook them up with the right people. The right people, because like the, the, there's a great organization yeah. here regionally that's a it's the St. Louis uh, Regional Critical Incident Stress Debriefing. Team. Yes, and they come in for free. You just call them and they come. But part of the problem is getting people to actually go to those and law enforcement. And I think the fire department EMS is a little bit better, but law enforcement, it's like pulling teeth to get the guys to go to that. Yeah. But I think me being away from the agency now, people are more open to come to me because I don't report to anybody. Right. And, um, and then I met Epen. I met Epen probably right after my husband died. He was a friend of a friend and I met him. Um, and he was having this, uh, psychedelic event and said, will you come speak on the law enforcement aspect? Will you come speak, you know, on, on how law, law enforcement sees psychedelics and how you guys are affected by mental health? And I was like, sure. It was kind of a last minute thing. I had to move my schedule around, but I, I got there and I got to talk and I, and it opened my eyes to so much that I didn't know was available to people. And I know a lot of them have to wait till retirement to do it because it is still a class one. And if you're tested, you, they could lose their jobs and a lot of with military as well. Um, but it's still an option. And we have so many retirees that are suffering as well. And you don't realize till you're on that other side yeah. that we have such a huge population. Retire retirees would retire and die. Seriously. We had guys who weren't getting a first pension check. They would die right after it because of the trauma and the stress. But we have so many guys now who are living 20, 30 years after retirement and they're suffering and they're suffering alone. Well, that's where having an integration program or something like that for the officers to be able to get to to help them reintegrate mm-hmm. back into retired life, you know, to to learn how to deactivate, so to speak, and to get back in there. And that would be available to all veterans mm-hmm. or all you know, ex-first responders, you yeah. know, veterans as well. And then, you know, it, it creates a pathway for that. But it is it is more difficult trying to get the current serving police officers access to the right type of healing yes. you know because like you said earlier about addiction well mm-hmm. you look what the state of kentucky is doing with ibogaine we know that ibogaine in a one-time treatment can end you know with 90 something percent effectiveness of mm-hmm. ending opiate addiction yes. in one treatment now there are some side effects health-wise for that, and you have to be screened because it can cause some heart issues and stuff yes. like that. But for healthy individuals who are not prone to that, which most police officers should qualify as healthy, mm-hmm. you know, that they you would get close to retirement. <laughs> they get close to retirement. Right? It's like the military. But, you know, they would have access to treatment that could potentially kick that opiate addiction. That would just get rid of that. Yes. You know, and, and I know that uh, Epen has talked to several, and for the listening audience, this is Epen Thampy. He runs the Missouri Psychedelic Society. Yeah. Um, and then he also has uh, uh, the Great great State Strategies, which is what he does all his lobbying yes. and, and uh, legalization efforts in. Um, but I know he has talked to a lot of police departments that are very interested in like psilocybin therapy mm-hmm. and doing things like that for their officers and getting them to the medicine because it helps with the PTSD. It helps with recovery and other types of traumas and things like that. And I'm sure that police officers, to a, to a degree, um, probably to a large degree, suffer the same issue as many soldiers where it's complex PTSD. Yes. It's not just single event PTSD. Yeah. It wasn't the job. A lot of these people were probably traumatized at some point in their life, whether it be sexual abuse, whether it be growing up in a bad area, bad parents, abusive situations, whatever. And then their reaction to that was, well, I'm going to defend. 
and I'm going to make sure that nobody else can get hurt. And so I'm going to go be the protector. And then so they already have some type of trauma moving into this space. Mm -hmm. And then you add the stress of the job. Now you've got complex PTSD and it's yes. a much more difficult situation to work through. Oh. And uh, so I'm really glad that you're at least opening the door for this. I, I agree with you. I think this is going to be a very difficult wheel to turn and it's going to take a lot of time, especially within law enforcement, especially with the stigma with narcotics. Yes. But that's why I think when we were at the society, uh, Dr. Siegel from mm -hmm. uh, Washington University and the psychiatry department there, I love the research that he did specifically because it showed the addictive properties, the lethality of these different chemical substances. And when you look at that graph and you look on the right-hand side of that and you see heroin, morphine, alcohol, and you're like, wow, I can go buy alcohol at my gas station. Yes. But then you look to the far left of it and the least lethal, the least addictive medicine on the whole list was psilocybin. Yeah. And it's, it's a like shame. mushrooms, and that's illegal. And it, and it really challenges you. And then when you showed the brain mapping, that was the one that did it for me. Because, you know, that's the, one of the things that Washington University is doing that I think is so cool, is they have brain imaging technology. Mm -hmm. So they're able to get people in there, run those brain scans without the mushrooms, without the psilocybin. Then they come back in and they do the same thing with the psilocybin. And when you see the amount of neuropathic increase and in all of the neuroconnectivity that takes place in that, that just blew me away. Yeah, the drastic before and after. Oh, man. And it makes complete sense why this works, why this reprograms neuropathways, why mm -hmm. this allows people to be able to have the cognitive increase to be able to deal with these traumas. Yes. Because that's what a lot of people don't understand, too, is PTSD is trauma. It's brain injury. It's an injury, yes. And you combine that with the actual what's going on at the job, getting hit in the head, falling. Oh, all the concussions, all the brain injuries. Punches, you you yes. name it. Now you've got legitimate CTE. You've got legitimate brain damage. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you have trauma, PTSD, which is also brain damage. Yes. You got a lot of people walking around. You know, like when Boone Cutler was here, he said that before he started his uh, medicine pro profile, because I have his book over here, I think it's called FPL. And um, that's what he did with the psilocybin therapy and all that. Mm -hmm. But he was at a 40% CTE. He had 40% brain damage. And he, with plant medicine, using cannabis, using psilocybin, using cognitive therapy mm -hmm. and growth hormone, was able to reduce his brain damage down to 10 percent. Oh, my gosh. And see, a, there's there's no baseline for any of that. Like they don't check police before, like when they start, they don't check them to see what what the extent of, you know, if they have brain damage, maybe from concussions from playing football or sports or car accidents to the injuries they sustain on the job. Well, a lot of this you chalk up to getting older. I know I did. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, here I look just a year, maybe two years ago. Um, one of the things that I noticed being in the accounting and tax world most of my life, um, I'm also a professor at college, so I teach business at college, and I've got a lot of education myself. I've got all the way up through uh, my all but dissertation with a PhD. And so my issue that I was having though later in my academic career and my professional career is I wasn't remembering things. I was starting to free, become more forgetful. Uh, I didn't have as much drive to learn. Um, my vocabulary was starting to become limited and I was struggling in this intellectual space that I'd always excelled in. 
And that's not age. And I, well, I thought it was. Yes, I, I know thought we it do. was age. And it wasn't until I started my own cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. therapies. It wasn't until I got down the plant medicine road. And then especially with psilocybin, I'm a huge fan of microdosing. In fact, we even, uh, outside of psilocybin, uh, there was a company that I ran into in Vegas called Nanogenesis Labs. And they do this inhaler and this tincture with different types of mushrooms, whether it be lion manes mm-hmm. and all that. I saw that, yes. And- Wow, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, I was uh, sitting here last night and completely drained from, you know, a week in Vegas and trying to get my life mm-hmm. back in order. And, uh, you know, she had stole the inhaler when she went to work. And, and <laughs> I was like, oh, this sucks. And so I had to wait until the evening. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I was able to, I took two hits off that inhaler mm-hmm. and with almost immediately, the world became brighter. Everything became clearer. I was thinking more clearly. I had energy again. I felt uplifted. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what I'm used to now. This is what I'm getting used to feeling. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing is this all lasts. I've noticed that since I've been down this road, I think more clearly. I'm able to recall words better. Yeah. My memory is improving. Like you're not just stuck with this aging gap of my brain is deteriorating. And like a, like me, I was completely unaware of how much my brain had deteriorated. One of the things that I completely threw out of the thing is is I thought, well, you know, PTSD and army and whatever. Well, I've been active in the fighting world for 20 years. How many times have you been hit in the head? Oh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very good at not getting hit. So <laughs> I, I make a good punching bag. Well, you yeah. got to get hit to hit back. You do. You have to get it within range yeah. to get well, hit. Well, so. yeah, you spend the majority of your time like just getting nailed. Yeah. And, and but, uh, you know, and, and especially as you push yourself with competition, you know, yeah. and that varying levels. But I've been hit in the head a lot. Yes. And now it makes sense to me. It's like, no wonder I was losing my cognitive ability. Exactly, no wonder yeah. I was slipping in these areas and these things were happening. But there has to be so many people out there that are suffering that, Mm -hmm. that are in high stress jobs, that are law enforcement, first responders, veterans, active duty military, they don't realize that their most important organ in their whole body is damaged and it's broken and it needs to be Mm -hmm. fixed. And then they're denying access to the tools that deliberately heal and fix the brain. Well, I analogize it to guys that, you know, they consider it a mental illness. They consider PTSD a mental illness, but they, they, say PTSD, disorder. Insurances won't pay for disorders, they'll pay for illnesses. So I, to these guys that don't want to think like, oh, I have a mental illness. And I'm like, well, think of it as like cancer in your brain. There's damage in your brain. Cancer creates a lot of damage. Having a head injury, having the PTS is damage in your brain. And you would normally, you would go get treatment for cancer. You would go get treatment for a broken arm. If you busted your skull open, you'd go get treatment but they don't seek treatment when there's other traumas to the brain. Mm. And that's where I'm really pushing these guys to think, hey, seeing a dead baby, seeing some of the things we see, doing the things we do, then having a concussion on top of that. You know, you go through the concussion protocol, but is there really any treatment with that? There's no brain scans to really look at these guys and see what they've been through. And we have to start treating it as an illness and not a disorder. Right. It's really not a mental disorder. It is a true illness. No, it's and completely trauma. yeah, it's a completely mm-hmm. treatable condition. You're not stuck with it. No. You know, you're you know, and, and I don't even like to use the word broken. You know, you're just injured. That's all yes, it is. You're it's injured. just an injury. It's it's it doesn't mean you're broken. You know, we, we have such a stigma and mental health in this country and, and we're trying to normalize that now and we're getting mm-hmm. better. But 
for so many years that was just ignored. And, you know, and I've said that before in the podcast, you know, the hardest thing for me was to look at myself in the mirror and go, I'm hurting. Yes. Like I'm actually hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like such a simple thing to do, but it's not. No. Because we want to cover it with all of our layers and we want to put our walls up and we want to be tough. The masculinity. I got this. Yeah. You know, and then when you look at yourself one day and you're like, man, I, I don't got this. Like, no, this is destroying my life. But we put a really good face on when we're out there. Oh, we do a hundred percent. You know, and and I tell people that all the time. You look at my life before ayahuasca and the cyclical depression, and how many times a week, literally, how many times a week I would be at the point of suicide. Mm-hmm. And if you seen me in my day to day life, you would think there was nothing wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I'm walking around. I'm talking. I'm laughing. We're having a great time. You don't know that I'm sitting on my couch that night with a gun in my hand. No. You have no clue. And then as soon as I get over that situation, you don't know what happened either because I don't tell anyone, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not a way to live life. No. That isn't, that isn't strength. That's not living. You know, it's not. And it's also not strength. No. It's not what I thought it was. I thought, well, I was handling my shit, you know, and nobody needs to know about this. I'll be fine. I can still help people. I can still do stuff. But, you know, at some point getting the healing is just better. Yes. Hey, I don't have to sit in my basement every night wondering if I'm going to die tonight. I don't have to worry about what my kids are going to do because I found a pathway out of that. Mm-hmm. I, and, you know, I think correcting this social narrative, you know, and I hear this a lot because I've become quite the advocate for medicinal or plant medicine, right? Yes. And everybody says, whoa, you know, this is just the stuff happening in your brain. I've had people break down all the science of it. And it's like, look, cool story, man. I don't care. I just don't like, yeah. let's say you're a hundred percent right. Yes. Did, did my life permanently change for the better? Yeah. Cool. You took your life back. So if I believe what I believe and if you believe what you believe, it still has the same result. So who gives a shit? Yeah. I don't care if this is just my brain playing tricks on me. It healed me. Great. Yeah. If Great. this is, yeah, if this is real and it's everything that I believe it to be even better yes don't care because my life is permanently changed yes why would you deny someone access to something that has the ability to do that exactly and that's that's my focus and my goal if i can help one person it's all matters that's all that matters right you know and i i would hope that that one person could help another person it's a snowball effect it's yeah i want the snowball effect and like you were talking about these things everything can be addictive food's addictive Mm mm-hmm if you abuse something, it's addictive. Exactly. You know, and controlled, you know, there are controlled substances out there. Morphine, coding in a controlled environment. It's great. You know, it stops the pain. You broke an arm. They'll give you a little bit of morphine. You're great to get through it. But you keep using it and you start abusing it. Now it's which illegal. Is, which is all pharmaceuticals that are derived from plants. plants. Yes. It's all natural. So why can't we use the psychedelics as you would use morphine to treat an injury. Why can't we use that to cure an injury? Yeah. Especially when you you look at the, the, the limited side effects and everything that's involved in that in comparison, you know, about the only argument that they have against psychedelics is like, well, there are episodes where people have a psychotic break, 
Yeah, but those are relatively identifiable too. And there are certain people that have some serious traumas and they're, mm-hmm. they're not set up for that. But, well, you have people who are allergic to morphine yeah. and codeine. Yeah. It's but, the same. It's, right. It's but almost the same When you look way. at that, as like you said, when you look at that as like a side effect as a whole. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, the prescription drugs that we have out there have way more side effects. Yes. And, and much worse. And then there's plenty that also include psychotic breaks. Yes. <laughs> Especially the antidepressants. Yes. So you, I mean, the, one of the biggest warnings on an antidepressant is could cause suicidal thoughts. Right. Well, you're on the antidepressant to get away from the suicidal thoughts. Could be a problem. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) that's okay, though. Right. That's okay because it's pharmaceutical and they're making money. But when you get something they can't make money on, it becomes a problem and they block it. Well, hopefully this is a conversation that will continue to get traction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with the efforts that you guys are doing, the mental health, the, 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 the financial and physical help that you guys mm-hmm. are doing for officers is just absolutely phenomenal. And, and I really hope that you're able to impact even more people. I hope that there are people out there in the audience that are listening today that are going to take up this charge to come to help, especially the businesses. Yes. It sounds like there's a lot of businesses that are uniquely aligned to be able to step in and help this particular need in law enforcement. Uh, especially like, man, if you if you are out there and you're running a counseling service yeah. or a, a, you know, a psychiatric practice, practice this is a perfect opportunity for you to step up to help people that really need help because you know i like to take it back to the collective and we can look at this in a couple of different ways but the way that i think is most important and relevant to this conversation because we had talked earlier and georgia mentioned it about crime and safety and 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 the way the populace views things the more people that we bring healing to the, mm-hmm. the more people that wake up that that get to a space of better mental physical health they get to a space of living a better life then that's one more person of the collective that's awake yes that's one more person that is aligned with what we want that is aligned with the good of what we are doing so every time someone receives that that's one more and then eventually we will see the change. We will see less crime. We will see more people standing up. We will see more people volunteering. We will see more people finding healing. Yes. Because it only takes one person at a time to create that change because we all function as a collective. That is our society. Mm-hmm. And we think that that tide can't be turned, but in reality it can. And it can be turned a lot easier than we think. I'm seeing a turn already. As I think it's happening right now. I mean, just in the six months I've known about psychedelics, it's been a huge turn. And the acceptance I'm seeing from academics and military, and I mean, it's just... I tell you what, when psilocybin becomes legal, watch what happens. Well, you you know, psilocybin is going to peace be, in the world. Hundred percent. Yeah, the mushroom <laughs> mushrooms for the masses for sure. But that's the thing that surprised me is when we were at the um, the Kansas City Psychedelic Conference, mm-hmm. we had a lieutenant colonel there. Yes, active duty lieutenant colonel. She was the guard, active guard, and uh, she was over the psychiatric psychiatric department for the National Guard, and they had come just to explore what the treatment options were for soldiers because the veteran Department of Veteran Affairs has started to look into plant medicine and launching their own yeah. little program and, and things that they're doing in that regard. So that is really helpful that there are people out there taking this seriously. Yes. And then when you look at the legislators and you look at the colleges and the other organizations that are standing behind this and doing the research, it's a legitimate movement. It, it's 
it's a much different movement than the legalization of cannabis. Yes. And, and it is it is steeped in so much science. And uh, the people that are behind it are really trying to create change. And I think that's a good thing. Even though, mm-hmm. you know, and we still support cannabis. I do. But I will definitely say the one thing that is a little bit different in the world of cannabis. And I, and I will just have to admit this because you have to admit the goods and the bad. Mm-hmm. There is a recreational side to cannabis. Oh, of course. That was the big push for it. There is a a recreational side to Mm -hmm. it. As much as I use cannabis for medicinal therapy and I use it in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that, I also just enjoy getting high. So it's (laughs) like, you know, every now and then I I like to just sit down and just be stoned. And I can say I've never smoked a joint. I've never have. But, you know, we can fix it. I was like, he'll pop your cherry. I promise. I'll put you on the spot. (laughs) Um, No, we don't don't push drugs on other people. No, when it's when it's therapeutic and. um, And you can still regulate things, you know, and tax the shit out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, pharmaceuticals aren't going to really lose money. They just have to branch. I'm an economist. I'm all about syntax. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a highly inelastic good. Like just mm-hmm. tax the shit out of it and call it a day and everybody benefits. But, you know, again, cannabis is recreational. We're not talking about using the psychedelics for recreational. We're talking nope. about for treatment and cures. Correct. Well, and let's be honest, the ones, the most powerful ones, whether it be Ibogaine or mm-hmm. even ayahuasca, there is nothing recreational about ayahuasca. There's no part of me that wants to go do that again for fun. I've read that. No, that's not. No, this is a... This is a challenging event. Like when you go to sit with ayahuasca, you know you're going there to do the work. Yes. And you know that that is whatever that involves. That could be a great time. Mm-hmm. It could be one of the worst moments oh, of your yes, life. Oh, yes, But is. you know yeah. you're there to do work. Yes. Like you're going to get on that mat. You're going to get real with yourself. And you're going to put in the work. This is not something that you do, again, one, until you're ready to do it again. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I, I sit with the medicine. People ask me all the time, when are you going to sit again? I have no idea when I'm ready. When I get to a space that I feel like I need to do that again, that's yes. what I'm, because I'm not looking forward to doing it next weekend. No. And I've <laughs> talked to people about it and they're like, hey, you and I'm like, no, I'm not ready. Physically or mentally, I'm not ready for it. No. It, and I'm not, I can't do that one. It that's was, not something I can. Is as impactful to. as it was and as much as it completely changed my world. It was a difficult thing to do. Yes. You know, three days in a row, some of the scariest stuff you've ever done in your life is challenging. I don't care who you are. Well, it's, it's, it's and I don't want to even refer it because I can't even say how it is, but I mean, I've seen people detox and it's, you know, some things are easier to detox. Alcohol and nicotine are the two hardest things to detox from. Truth. And Caffeine I've for me. seen people have to be put into a coma for nicotine and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I can almost equate that almost to you're doing like a three day detox, mental, physical, spiritual. That's why they have the purge. Yeah, there's there's yeah. there's a lot of work that goes into it. And it and it is a very transformative experience, but it's definitely not something that is recreational. No. And the the mushrooms, I, I'm a huge fan of microdosing. Um, I love to microdose. In fact, that may be my favorite relationship that I have with mushrooms because the, the hero's journey doses and stuff like that, that's a completely different experience than, you know, what ayahuasca is, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's similar, but it's not the same. And, um, you know, the microdosing for the mushrooms, the, the clarity that it gives me, the focus that it gives me, the ability to be able to have the energy and to know that the entire time that I'm engaging in what I'm doing, I'm increasing my neural pathic ability i'm learning better i'm functioning better i'm thinking better i'm more clear like yeah. everything is on point and um 
you know, when I was in Vegas this past week at the conferences, I was microdosing the whole time because I wanted to be on top of my game. That wasn't a, I'm not looking to be fucked up right now. I'm, this was a performance enhancing. Yes. Adventure, like, right. That's what I was doing it for. I was deliberately doing that so that I was the very best version of myself that I could be in that moment. Yeah. I, I also microdose. I do a, a cycle. I do three days on two days off just because I believe in, cycling off of things especially when it comes with, with your brain but there's a supplement company that joe rogan owns it's on it and they have a thing called alpha brain and it has yeah. the exact same effect as psilocybin does but psilocybin is one ingredient versus whatever the hell they put in their little cocktail like eight, right yeah eight to 20 and, ingredients and yeah. i and i know the one ingredient that's in there is comes from the ground i literally I can watch it grow myself yes so it's not like i'm depending on some dude with dreads in a garage in georgia to make whatever Mixed it's chemicals right that would kill you otherwise and it, it's it's very controlled. Um, it's a 50 mil. I do 50 milligrams. Um, they say the Warriors is like 500 Ooh. where you start to trip. Um, so it's like five grams. Yeah. So it's yeah. like super, super small dosage. I mean, you don't, there's no psychedelic craziness about it. It's just like, mm -mm. it's sharp. It makes you on your best game you could possibly think. If you ever had those days where like, man, I'm, I am just, I, I'm on my game today. That's the feeling you get. You're just sharp, formulate sentences brain just everything's working as a great oiled machine yeah, the whole world gets brighter yeah that's when i know it kicks in because i'll be sitting there and all of a sudden now everything will illuminate the lights are brighter everything yeah. is clear i see better it's, it's everything is crystal clear in that moment and then it's like oh here you are and then my energy levels up and then my brain is just functioning better i'm thinking better i'm talking mm -hmm. better my vocabulary all of my remembering is better I mean, and it just comes into play and yeah that's definitely and so what i try to do when i'm in those spaces is that's when i do my work that's when i do my meditation mm -hmm. that's when i do my therapy that's when i sit down and i set my intentions what do i need to work on today what do i need to do today to help me be a little bit better of a person than i was the day before that gives you that clarity yes then instead of being so confused and in a fog so you know like you have your phone and start slowing down and you realize you have like 50 pages open and you hit close all that and all of a sudden your phone's is great yeah that's the easiest analogy i can make for oh you my God. it's like you take your psilocybin once it kicks in you just hit close all and now you're a laser yeah, cause I, I mean, I just know from from my experience, personal, you know, after my husband died, that was my trigger for my PTSD. Him being killed was the, the PTSD um, kicking in. And I went into that fight or flight mode. I was in a fight or flight mode for almost a year, mm. not realizing it. Um, due to friends, it kind of kept me, they kept me very focused on other things. But when I was alone, it was fight or flight. And I, I was scared to leave my house at times. I'm a policeman. I don't blame you. I've worked with gang members. I carry a gun. I lived in the inner city. I worked in the inner city. And I was terrified to leave my house at times. Um, and there's a lot of times still today where I get so bogged down. Like anxiety creates chaos. Chaos creates more anxiety. Mm -hmm. And um, he can test. My house is a mess. You know. Um, but when I get clear days, I can clean things i can and i'm not saying it's it's dirty it's just junky i have stuff everywhere when i get a clear head i can clear stuff mm -hmm. when i don't things start accumulating again and it's not that it doesn't have a place in my house it does i just don't feel like putting it away but i know there's days where i'm clearer than others and and i'm sure there's other first responders and other just anybody in general out there that have those days and if that could help somebody why not well i have to commend you for recognizing that because that's one of the things that I actually preach, and I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast mm -hmm. up to this point. 
But your home and the cleanliness that you live in, the environment that you live in, is a direct reflection of what's going on internally in the human. You go to somebody's house and they're living in chaos and there's filth everywhere, there's clutter everywhere, whatever the case may be. That is a direct representation of what's going on internally with that human. Mm -hmm. That's why they're comfortable living in that space. You want to start working in your mental health? Clean your home. Well, I'm not comfortable in my space. It, yeah. it, it creates more anxiety for me. No. But see. the anxiety creates the chaos. And then again, looking at the chaos and dwelling on it Cre gives me more create right. gives Snowball, more anxiety. Right. Yeah. So yeah. it just keeps going. Round robin. Um yeah. I mean, I, I will do very deep cleanings of my house. I like I shampooed all the carpets, I mopped all the floors, I cleaned everything, but there's still clutter on the tables, there's still clutter on the counters where I just need to put that stuff away. Yeah. And um I know that's something I have to work on for myself. I can't even do any work until the house is clean. Like I wake up in the morning and before I can even sit down and do work in the morning, the house has to be clean. I cannot have anything else on my mind. I can't be worried about the dishes that I have to do upstairs or the floor I have to sweep or the thing I have to pick up on the couch. The house needs to be in order so that mm -hmm. I can focus on what I'm there to do and I'm there to work. Yes. And I can't have that clutter because I'm not as good that way. I'm constantly distracted. Mm -hmm. And it and it directly impacts my mental health. Yes. So, you know, that's something that I started developing a few years ago. Well, mostly because of my wife, because she was the one that introduced me to that concept. But since I've made that change, that has also had a huge impact on the quality of my mental health. Even before ayahuasca, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of like preemptive things that you do before you find your way to the medicine that start making huge incremental improvements to your mental health, yeah. to your physical health space to kind of get you there. But it's not a one thing fits all type of solution. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have good mental practices, good physical practice, good behaviors, good habits. So you got to be doing the work every single day. If you're not waking up every day trying to be a little bit better than you were the day before, mm -hmm. you're not doing the work. There, this yeah. is this is not a game where you get to stand still. When you stop, you go backward well, every I, time. I do sometimes, like with policemen, they're going, 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 going on their days off. I tell them it's okay to spend one day in bed. It's okay to decompress if you, that's what you need, but don't get stuck in that rut where every day you're off, you're stuck in bed. Right. Do it one day. Maybe have movie day with the kids. You know, if you have kids or if you you know with your family, you stay in bed, you watch TV, you you snack. Whatever, but the next day you do something. Get out there and move. I rest really hard. I do everything to the extremes. So, like, when I'm on, I'm on. Yeah. When I'm off, off. Yeah. Like, completely off. And like, I can't turn off yeah. yet. I can't we, get that complete turn off yet. We do lazy Sundays here. Yeah. Like every every Sunday is a lazy Sunday. We refuse to schedule anything on Sundays. Mm -hmm. There's no work allowed on Sundays. There's no anything allowed on Sundays. The only thing you're allowed to do on Sunday is wake up and exist and yeah. then maybe go for a hike or something in nature like we allow ourselves that type of activity but that's for you there is no thing else that happens on sundays that's awesome. it's just we've been doing that for i guess a little over two and a half years now that's so. awesome that's you know because you're doing it for you you're taking the time for yourself and that's what a lot of people have to recognize because we go 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 so much yeah. that you have to stop once in a while i i found with myself if i don't have that one day off mm-hmm then I'm worthless the rest of the week. Yeah. Like I, I can work six days in a row. I can be on for six days in a row, but I need at least one day's rest. Mm -hmm. If I don't get a good, solid recovery day in, mm -hmm. then you can just go ahead and wipe my next week because I will, I'll be dragging all week <laughs> long until I get to the other space and be yeah. able to work it out. So. Oh, yeah.
Well, I'll tell you what, we have talked for a minute. This has been a good conversation. I I love the ground that we got to cover today. And uh, I love learning about your guys' organization and everything that you're doing. Uh, This definitely won't be the last time we'll have you on the podcast. No, I'd love to come back. We're just aging the surface. Oh, just scratching the surface. All we did is just start this conversation. We haven't even hardly got into it. So (laughs) yeah, um, you guys have a trivia night coming up in Festus. It's going to be on April 12th, 2024. April 12th, 2024. Okay, make sure you get me the information for that. I will. I'll promote that out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, would you like the Stone Apes to come check your thing out? Yeah, sure. All right, we'll come out. We'll be on site for that. Yeah, and we're also That's working good. on, um, I am working on a cornhole tournament, hopefully sooner than that, because a lot of people like to do the That's cornhole. That's where they throw those bean bags. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's something. They it's call just something that, to get together. They call that all kinds of stuff different places. I heard a funny name for that. Hey, babe, what was the name of that place? They, they not cornhole. What were they calling it? Bag toss, toss bags. I forget. Anyway, <laughs> toss so, across. Like we used to, <laughs> it was something silly. Yeah. But apparently it's like Coke and pop, like different areas yeah, of the country yeah, yeah. call it different things. And I heard some, I always called it cornhole. And somebody was like, came up with something. And it's like bag toss. Yeah. And I was like, who knows? No, that makes sense too, but that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. But then they decided to make fun of me for calling a cornhole, and I was like, "Wait a second, you're the asshole using the different language here." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was a big debate in college: pop or soda. You know. Yeah. Oh man, but uh, thank you guys again. I appreciate you very much. Uh, if you're still out there listening, why don't you do me a favor? Go ahead and hit that subscribe button and then click that notification bell so that you don't miss future episodes. We will drop all of our episodes Friday at 4:20 unless for some reason we're late and we'll do it Saturday by midnight. <laughs> Disclaimer. All right. But I appreciate all of you guys out there that are listening, and I thank you so very much. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. I want to give a big thank you to Malevolent Art Tattoo Studio out of Barnhart, Missouri. That is our man, Anthony Ferguson, over there. And you guys have heard me talk a lot about him. He is an excellent tattoo artist. He's a wonderful person, a great human, and a big friend to this podcast if you guys are out there looking for a tattoo why don't you do me a favor look into the description find the link to anthony go ahead and reach out to him if you uh mention the stoned apes podcast you will get 50 dollars off any booked tattoo appointment and again that is my man anthony ferguson over at malevolent art tattoo i want to give another thank you to our partner and sponsor the grunt style foundation the grunt style foundation leads the way in advocacy and outreach for veterans they handle food insecurities housing insecurities they do hyperbaric uh, chamber treatments and therapies uh, that they give away and uh, they are doing so much in the veteran space trying to help going out and being active in the community Uh, if you guys want to learn more about the grunt style foundation go ahead and look at their link in our description it'll take you out there it'll show you all the wonderful things that the organization is doing and we are proud to be partners with the grunt style foundation so make sure that you check them out and uh, if you have it in you go ahead and donate they could use the help and then donate to our good friends here Uh, we appreciate you guys so much for all that you have done hopefully you've enjoyed yourself today we have thank you for having us Uh, you are more than absolutely yeah you live close by so we're going to see more of you (laughs) get you over here for some pool (laughs) i was just looking at that i got a pool table in my basement too there you go all in the silverback lounge all right ladies and gentlemen for this episode the stoned apes are out